Welcome to the Perioperative Nutrition Podcast, sharing knowledge with clinicians to ensure all patients are ready for surgery. This six-episode series is sponsored by Abbott Nutrition, and here's your host, Dr. Paul Wishmeyer of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. My name is Paul Wishmeyer, and I am the director of the perioperative therapeutic area here at Duke Clinical Research Institute, the DCRI, and I also am a professor of anesthesiology and surgery and and the director of the nutrition service here at Duke. It is my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Tom Varghese. And Tom, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Varghese. I'm a thoracic surgeon. I, I had the uh, section of thoracic surgery here at the University of Utah. I'm also co-director of the thoracic oncology program at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. And uh, uh, pertinent to this conversation, I'm also the medical director of the American College of Surgeons Strong for Surgery program, which is a quality program uh, of the ACS. It's really great to have you, Tom. And I think the topic we really want to get at today is is the role of oral nutrition supplements and, and ultimately the role of, of diagnosing and treating malnutrition in our surgical patients. And you, you've had some really amazing experience in starting Strong for Surgery. And as a part of that pathway that, that you worked on, I know nutrition and addressing malnutrition in patients uh, was a really key. It'd be great to hear a little bit about that pathway and your viewpoint on the role of, of malnutrition and oral nutrition supplements to treat it in surgery. A- absolutely, Paul. Uh, well, you know, this all started with a journey uh, that started in uh, 2012 uh, in Washington State. And uh, the, the, re- the realization that um, we've had a lot of focus and attention over the decades on optimizing surgical techniques and uh, delivering safer anesthesia and all these amazing quality improvement efforts that started after a patient walks into the hospital. But the reality is, is that the surgical journey or a patient towards a safe surgical intervention typically starts from the first time that the patient steps into a, a surgeon's clinic. Uh, that's that first interaction where traditionally the conversations have been around you know, talking about the risks and benefits of uh, surgical intervention and uh, classically the patient would sign an informed consent and then kind of disappear and then uh, reemerge on the day of surgery when there's a flurry of activity that's centered on the patient. But uh, once we started talking to a lot of people, um, uh, there's this unique opportunity where if we can optimize a patient's health before they step into a hospital, really start engaging them from that first time uh, that they walk into a surgeon's office, that we can really uh, truly uh, improve outcomes. And, and these ideas are not new, Paul. I mean, uh, there's been a plenty of evidence in the literature where you know optimizing uh, a patient's uh, health, including optimizing their nutritional status, really can uh, give you better outcomes um, uh, around the time of surgery, as well as uh, better long-term outcomes and functional recovery as well. And so it, the, the story of Strong for Surgery really came about in terms of engaging those patients from the first time that they walk into the surgeon's office, really uh, delivering a platform where we can help optimize the patient health well ahead of the surgical intervention. And then it's, uh, it's part of a continuum that they walk into the hospital, add on all the other quality improvement efforts and uh, continue that journey towards uh, the best possible surgical outcomes in every single patient each and every single time. Yeah, 
I think that's really it's really an innovative and, and great way to do it. And I think specifically taking it back to nutrition, there's there's many of us that feel that, that malnutrition maybe is one of the true silent epidemics facing our patients today. With we know as many as two out of every three GI surgery patients being malnourished when they present to us. And I know that was a particular target of the Strong for Surgery program. What was the pathway that you used to identify and treat those patients? Well, when we got together, we got our uh, content stakeholders together, uh, we ended up, you know, so the goal was trying to find areas where you can optimize patient health before surgery. And then we scanned the literature. And there were four areas that emerged. Um, one of them was nutrition, optimizing nutritional status. The other three areas were blood sugar control, smoking cessation, and uh, medication optimization. And the reason why these four areas were targeted was that there was so much overwhelming information in the literature, there really wasn't a debate that this is what we should target. Uh, it wasn't one of these, oh, there's an experimental phase or anything like that. <laughs> there was overwhelming literature. And as you correctly pointed out, it's fascinating, um, uh, it, probably, and also a little bit sad that there's this silent epidemic of uh, malnutrition. Uh, as you know well, you know, um, it, some people have estimated that, uh, you know, not just surgical patients, that uh, a little bit more than half of all hospitalized patients are malnourished at the time of their uh, admission to the hospital. And uh, in healthcare, unfortunately, traditionally, we've always been reactive. We wait for the complication to emerge or we wait for a problem to, uh, to present itself and then the, everybody's trying to react to that. Uh, let's now try to go about correcting it. But early identification of risk factors, early identification of people potentially at risk is actually a better strategy. You know, you know, even if even if it's something where you can't really do truly something about to 100% totally prevent, just alerting teams and bringing content experts uh, on board uh, right away, um, it really helps patients uh, through their journey. And and I think that that's where we landed upon uh, nutrition as well. Um, but you hit it. I mean, I I don't know if it's just because it's not a sexy topic or it's just not it hasn't gotten enough attention. But for whatever reason, nutritional status is something that it's consistently seen uh, across the different surgical specialties, across different health conditions, that if you're malnourished and you don't do something about it, your patient is being set up for a bad outcome. And that's consistent each and every single time. One of the ways we've put it is that no malnourished patient should ever have elective surgery without having a malnutrition evaluation and treatment when needed. And treatment when needed, exactly. And the unfortunate aspect, the other reason why Strong for Surgery really came to attention was, unless you set up a system where you're actively looking for it, you're not gonna know. I mean, you can pretend to, uh, that the problem doesn't exist, but then all of a sudden you're gonna have a patient in the post-operative period who's running into complications or at increased uh, uh, you know, incidence of death. Um, but you need to keep uh, build those surveillance systems ahead of time. You have to constantly ask yourself, is this patient optimized? Is this patient malnourished? And then once you find that out, you have to have a system in place where you do something about it. I mean, it's, that's probably the simplest explanation of the Strong for Surgery program, as well as other quality improvement programs that work in the preoperative space, is building that surveillance system and then doing something with the information that you find out. And, and what were the questions you would ask the patients? Yeah, the simple things. So, so the, the, there's uh, you know, really three areas in the nutrition checklist. Um, you know, the simplest of the three areas was measuring albumin levels. Now, 
we all know that a, a, a simple blood test like albumin is not the most comprehensive assessment. That was more about risk stratification because albumin levels were easy to get at all sorts of hospitals across the country. Um, and it was an, a routine lab value that was being collected. And so in the literature where it says is that if the albumin level is below three, your chance of having morbidity or mortality significantly goes up. And so that's the first thing is just risk quantification. Um, the second thing is really uh, surveillance for malnutrition. So it's uh, using standardized questions where you ask for things such as have, have the patient had unintentional weight loss? Have they had difficulty eating? Um, you know, uh, are they low body mass index, like less than 19? If any of these questions were yes, then it's really getting nutrition specialists and dietitians involved right after that first interaction in the clinic. That is getting them involved early ahead of the surgical intervention. And then the third area we targeted were uh, immunonutrition supplements. And there, uh, when we looked at the literature, the, the literature had really shown that uh, those patients undergoing GI surgeries were typically involving a, a bowel resection and anastomosis. Those patients were particularly at risk for developing surgical soft tissue infections. And there was overwhelming literature showing that immunonutrition supplements started before surgery in the five to seven days ahead of the surgical intervention. Um, it really helped uh, deliver better outcomes. Now, the honest truth, though, is that this is only a first step in the nutrition space. We just targeted these three areas just because that's where the evidence was, but there's a lot of evidence that continues to emerge, uh, and we know that you know we're not going to be staying static. That is, is that the next uh, you know reiterations of the strong for surgery nutrition checklist is really going to keep adding in the best evidence, uh, as you you know well know Paul. I mean, all the uh, evidence of you know increasing protein content uh, for even the adequately nourished patient ahead of surgery may be a good idea. Uh, and there's gonna be continuing studies that emerge, which we believe is gonna influence that. And so even though strong for surgery checklists right now uh, are the three points that I told, uh, talked about, you can imagine in the years ahead that this will continue to evolve as the science evolves as well. Here at Duke, we, we've begun a process called a, the POET Clinic, the Paraoperative Enhancement Team Clinic, where we are using a, a, a checklist very similar to Strong for Surgery. You guys really helped inspire the questions we ask, where we, have you lost more than 10 pounds in the last three months? Have you taken in less than half of what you need in the last five days or half of what you usually eat? And then albumin as well. And, and just like you did, we learned from you, if they had those things, we're starting them on uh, high-protein oral nutrition supplements for three weeks to a month before surgery, especially these large abdominal surgeries. You hit it right on the head. And now, of course, we're all talking about elective surgery right now. We're also currently working on what to do with patients who may need you know, urgent operations where you don't have the luxury of time. Um, are there still things that we can potentially do? Uh, let's say you only have a week before surgery. Is there something we can do in the week before surgery? Or let's say you only have a few days. Maybe there's something we can do in the few days. I mean, th these are kind of the other areas that we're exploring right now. But the framework still remains. We have to build a system where we ask those critical questions. Uh, you know, we do the surveillance system really to find out well, who those patients are at risk. But then the other key important thing, you got to do something with the information. Unfortunately, there's a lot of database projects out there across the country where they, uh, where people participate in robust database or quality improvement pro uh, projects, but if they receive the information, they don't do anything with the information, 
well, I'm not quite sure if we're really doing anything better than and not knowing. I mean, so it's really finding out the information and then doing something with the information you get back as well. Yeah, it's, it's really, I think, come time. We have so much evidence for immunonutrition improving outcomes. For even recently, there was a paper in, in a, one of the really high-impact nutrition journals showing that just even 0.2 grams more, some high-protein neural nutrition supplements for a few days after colorectal surgery, reduced length of stay for four days. Uh, and so even a few days after surgery, even if you can't get to them before surgery, increasing protein intake with these oral supplements can improve outcome. And, and I think what this really says is what you said is it's time to act. We have the data. And that's the type of thing that we also have to capitalize on because the other uh, reality, the sobering reality we had when we started Strong for Surgery, as you and I both know, and others who are probably listening in on this podcast, um, there's unfortunately a, a, a sobering fact. That is, it takes about 15 to 17 years before findings from randomized clinical trials become incorporated into systematic practice. That's way too long. I mean, that, that, that delay in enacting evidence that works is costing patients and costing lives. Uh, I, it's just something that we have to do something about. And so uh, the study that you just cited, we have to set up a system where, you know, that's a great finding. And then if it's reproducible, now we have to translate that into uh, clinical practice. And that's really where we're trying to set these platforms up about not only uh, initiating evidence that works now, but also initiating a platform whereby when future findings are, are, are determined, we can have a mechanism set in place where we can translate directly into clinical practice. That's what we need to do. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the clinic that you talked about, you know, is, is a cutting edge type of thing. Sadly, that's not the norm across the United States. I mean, the, the variation and variability across this nation and across the world is mind boggling. We're here in the 21st century. We have all the best evidence at our fingertips on our smartphones. Um, you can hear about a randomized clinical trial that happened that's being conducted in Malaysia that's a, it finds a positive finding and you can find out about that seamlessly in real time almost if it gets published in either traditional journals or on social media yet we don't have platforms in place that can then translate that into active steps to help our patients I mean that's really that implementation barrier is something that we also have to work on uh, in the years ahead as well. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. I think we're we're really in a place where we need to start taking these bold steps to to take this evidence forward. And you know, I think you know we know that less than one in four medical schools in the U.S. teach meaningful clinical nutrition to our young physicians. And so I think we need to learn to rely on our our dietitians and then also rely on the protocols that the American College of Surgeons and, and, and others are putting out. We just published guidelines from the Perioperative Quality Institute and American Society for Enhanced Recovery to try to spell out some simple pathways people can follow. But I think the college really coming forward with with efforts around this is going to be a, a, a big step forward as you guys continue to develop that material. That's what we're hoping for. And, and I think that the, the important thing with the support of the American College of Surgeons, the other be, great thing that uh, the ACS has done before is they're, they're also uh, knowledgeable about the fact that they alone by themselves are not going to be the ones that are going to change this. We need, really need to extend out and have active partnerships with, with other folks. And so this is where, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the anesthesiology societies, the nutrition societies, 
Uh, we really, the patients, uh, you know, advocacy societies, this is really where doing this in a multidisciplinary collaborative effort is really going to uh, make the, the change for the better. Uh, we need to reach out, we need to collaborate more, we need to learn from each other. Um, we, we, you hear about the buzzword about learning communities being thrown out. A learning community is not just individual members or individual people, it's also individual groups or organizations or nations. I mean, we really need to collaborate and band together uh, because the status quo is not cutting it. I mean, having a patient who's already malnourished and then starving them with an NPO past midnight and then subjecting them to a huge surgical stress and then waiting days later to feed them, I mean, we're just setting that patient up for a complication or, or mortality right from the get-go. But that, what I just described to you is the traditional surgical pa paradigm. The traditional paradigm was, uh, well, let's just take this patient to surgery and we'll deal with any problems that happen afterwards. We starve them and then we, oh, let's wait for quote unquote return of bowel function. So we continue to starve them after surgery. And then we're all shocked that they have a bad complication. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so we got to do things to change that. And, and the fact that you, you and I are still having this debate right now in the 21st century uh, is amazing. I mean, this is literature. You and I both know this, and, and people who are listening in know this. this. We're talking about literature that's almost 40 years old now about the, uh, the perils of being malnourished around the time of surgery. Um, but unfortunately, we're still talking about it right now as well. Um, the hope, of course, is that as we start doing these type of things, uh, our hope is, is that, you know, 10 years from now, that we'll look back longingly at these days and say, can you imagine that this is the conversation we were having? That, that really we need to act on uh, nutrition ahead of surgery? That it's almost kind of uh, in shock in terms of having those type of conversations at that time. That's our hope, that we change this, that we got to act. And I agree with you, Paul. I think that you know there's so much information out there. Um, inaction is not the answer anymore. We have to do something to improve our patient's nutritional status each and every single time. I think that was perfectly said. You know, it's when I presented this extensive data that you said very rightfully goes back 30 years. We have what some meta-analyses, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 patients for immunonutrition and the support of that. We have thousands of patients for high protein neural nutrition supplements, improving outcomes. And, and I have people say to me, isn't it malpractice not to treat this? You know, when we know that every dollar we spend on an oral nutrition supplement saves $52 in hospital costs. And I say, yeah, it probably is malpractice, but we got to we have to get people on board with that, and and we have to we now we have to act. Now we have to act. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes in healthcare uh, we have barriers, and sometimes the barriers are you know uh, well if we give a nutritional supplement we're not going to quote unquote get reimbursed. I mean I've heard that you you probably heard the same thing, um, you know that pre preoperative nutrition counseling uh, in a patient who's not diabetic oftentimes is not reimbursed. Um, and, and that becomes part of this, uh, the problem. And I think that, uh, you know, nobody should ever say that uh, the only time you should do things in healthcare is if you get reimbursed for it. But, you know, the, the reality also is, is that, you know, you can't have systems, you know, hemorrhaging money or losing money also. So we, we understand uh, all the different aspects or the different viewpoints 
that are involved. But I, I think it goes back to uh, hopefully part of this awareness and education is not only to the public, but to insurance companies as well. I mean, I think it would be wise for an insurance company really to pay attention to this. That is, is that there are modifiable steps or there are actions you can take ahead of a surgical intervention that can improve your outcomes. Um, and, you know, if we talk about, let's say, a surgical technique or an anesthesia technique, if you and I talk about a surgical technique where we say, this surgical technique, if you employ that, will cut down your mortality uh, by, you know, a significant fold or cut down your complication rates by about 10%. Let's say, just give that as a uh, hypothetical number. Um, you, you can imagine the outcry or if you didn't employ that surgical technique or anesthesia technique like tomorrow, <laughs> you know, it would, it would be amazing that, you know, but we're, yet we're talking about the same type of interventions here in the nutrition space, um, as well. Uh, and so it's, you know, part of the change efforts is also changing culture, changing mindsets. I agree with you. I think my gut instinct is I do think that there's probably uh, an element of ignorance. Maybe people aren't aware of how robust and solid this literature is. Um, and so the way to help that is by educating them. Um, there's probably also elements of, well, I've been doing it the same way every time for the last 20 years. Why should I change now? And then part of that is, you know, trying to overcome that. Um, but part of it is also we need to engage patients. And that's, I think, where a lot of our future efforts are probably going to go to. I mean, patients are very well informed nowadays, more so than in years past. And they're asking the right questions. You know, they're asking, hey, is there something I can do to help get myself in better shape before surgery? That's a very common question people ask each and every single time. And part of it is that's the way we've built our lives. You know, we don't embark on things in our uh, normal day-to-day -day lives without preparing for it. I mean, you don't go to the grocery store without making a list of things that you're going to need. You don't just show up at the grocery store and wing it. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work. You don't go travel somewhere without asking your friends or looking on websites like Travelocity and everything before you show up there. Yet, patients are somehow expected to just show up on the day of surgery and not do anything ahead of time. I think patients are probably going to be pushing back the most in terms of the status quo is not uh, adequate and we have to do something for the better. We call it the teachable moment where where both patients and physicians, when faced with this huge obstacle for the patient, it's a lot like training for a marathon where the patient's training for the marathon of their life. And you wouldn't train for a marathon starving yourself the night before or not preparing with the right nutrition and preparation the weeks before. And, and yet that's what we think maybe they should do right now in our practice. But it does. But no one would ever do that. Like you said, I think you said it perfectly. So I think that really hits it on the head. So to summarize, what I think I'm hearing is I think, you know, everything you're saying, and I think we both have I've always felt that, that malnutrition is truly an epidemic for our patients, both in the surgical world and the hospitalized world. And that we have overwhelming data now that, that oral nutrition supplements and nutrition screening and nutrition intervention can change this outcome and, and trains, prepares people for these big surgical interventions can make a big difference in their outcome. And now it's time for all of us to act and, and to find ways to put this in place. And I think you've been a leader in that. And I think, you know, uh, as we begin to close, I think that's the, a key message that you've shown it really can be done. And, and I think that's an inspiration to us all. Yeah, no, I mean, Strong for Surgery, uh, for the listeners, uh, 
you know, it started in Washington State with uh, six brave pilot sites in 2012. We started spreading uh, through Washington State and Pacific Northwest in 2015, transitioned over to the American College of Surgeons. At the end of this year, at the end of 2018, we're on target to be active at 230 sites across the nation. And I, I would, it would be remiss of me not to say that those are the real heroes, the people who take the chances to make sure, hey, you know, it sounded like a, a, you know, a strange idea probably at the time that we launched it, but now people are realizing, yes, there are things we can do to really help a patient optimize their health each and every single time. And, uh, you know, the part of the learning community is we learn from every single new site that gets enrolled. We learn. There's phenomenal collaborations going on. Um, you know, we're always looking for new partners. Um, part of the way is the, you know, people ask me, well, do you make any money on this? And the honest answer is no. Um, you know, it's, it's free of cost to enroll in this. The only thing that the American College of Surgeons ask is, is that, you know, the agreement is, we just want to learn from you about how well you did or if there were any barriers towards the implementation. And the reason for that is every single site's uh, success stories or implementation barrier stories that helps the entire community learn as a whole. And that's really what it is all about. And also Strong for Surgery was designed in such a way that it can seamlessly flow into any other quality improvement program like an enhanced recovery after surgical program or uh, really be able to, mo to modify. And what we're also looking for is new ideas. You know, um, as we said, the, the checklist right now, that was the first version. I don't imagine that checklist being, uh, for the nutrition checklist, for example, to be in that same exact version 10 years from now. I mean, I anticipate it to be modified because we're going to be embracing the new evidence and, you know, doing that and really a a engaging the people that are already involved as well. But that, the, the true heroes, Paul, are the people doing the work, the, those on the front line, you know, engaging with patients, helping patients get, uh, you know, activated uh, or engaged in their own health people who uh, do the hard work each and everything, those are the true heroes in this. Uh, and we're just grateful to, to, to learn from each and every single one of them. Well, Tom, I think this has been great. I, I think you really have conveyed this message that, you know, we have the evidence, we, we have the knowledge, you know, we know we have, the, we have the right oral nutrition products for patients now available to us. These are not expensive products. We have the carb loads, we have the immunonutrition, we have the high protein nutrition supplements, they've all been studied. And we have some pathways that are forming that people can take advantage of, and, and some guidelines have been published, and, and more guidelines to come. And so I think this has been great, Tom, that you really expressed to us sort of the, the future and, and, and how we hope we see a future where this is a time we look back on as, gosh, how could we have not been addressing such obvious needs in our patients? This has been great, and and I, I hope... The listeners out there um, can take home that, that this is something that they can change in their practice and begin to change tomorrow. And and hopefully we can really make 10 years from now look a lot different than the way we treat malnutrition and, and address nutrition in our patients today in surgery. Amen, uh, Paul. A a amen. Thanks for listening, everybody. And hope you can take some of this back to your patients very soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the DCRI's Perioperative Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Abbott Nutrition. More episodes are available on SoundCloud and dcri.org.